today's episode, Andy Weir, and his new novel, Project Hail Mary. Hello, I'm Chris Alvarez, and perhaps you can't tell by looking at me, but I am a nerd. I've been a nerd for many years, and I'm good at it. In this show, I'd like to give you tips on how to be the most successful and well-informed nerd that you can possibly be. I speak with interesting people about cool things. Please join us if you're so inclined. This is Full Contact Nerd Interviews, and welcome. I'm speaking with Andy Weir, author of Project Hail Mary, uh, to be published May 4th by Ballantine Books, and also um, author of Artemis and the Martian and other works. Uh, thank you for speaking with me. Thanks for having me. So first, um, obviously, you have a lot of ideas rolling around in your head as a writer. How did um, the idea for, for Project Hail Mary rise above the rest and get written? <laughs> Well, um, unlike my other books, such, so usually my ideas come from me like daydreaming and speculating about cool science stuff that could happen in the future. But with Project Hail Mary, it was actually assembled from parts of other stories that I'd come up with. Um, basically, uh, right after The Martian, I was on top of the world, Ma, and um, signed up to, to write another book for Random House. And this was going to be called Zhek, Z-H-E-K. And it was going to be my magnum opus. It was going to be like a multi-book series that have aliens, faster than light travel, telepathy, hot chicks, you name it, everything science fiction, you know, has. And um, so I, I spent about a year working on it. I got 70,000 words into it which uh, for reference, The Martian is about 100,000 words. Um, got 70,000 words into it, and I realized one day, oh, this sucks. Um, this book is no good. <laughs> the, plot, the plot isn't coming together. It, I'm still in the first act. It's going to be this giant tome that nobody wants to read. The characters aren't interesting. No part of this is as awesome as I imagined it was going to be. And so I ditched it. And I um, got my uh, got, got the publisher to give me another year, and uh, I wrote Artemis instead. And I'm really happy that I did, um, because um, Jacques would have been just a total total disaster. However, there were a few nuggets in Jacques that were really cool concepts that kept that stuck in my mind. And one of them was a spacecraft fuel that basically could store energy almost as effectively as antimatter. It could basically uh, mass convert, uh, it could mass convert, you know, mass into light and use that, and you can use that as a propellant. And it could also take, it, it could do the opposite. It could turn light into mass to store the energy. And so um, in Jack, it was a technology that had been invented by aliens and stuff like that. Um, but I, but I really liked that idea, and I thought, okay, what if, what if humans, what if we just had that and get rid of the aliens, get rid of all that other stuff? What if we just had that technology? We could do an awful lot with it. I mean, we, it would be trivial to fly to Mars, or whatever. It'd be like super cheap, everything. And then I thought, well, we, I mean, we don't have remotely the ability to make that technology, and I don't want to write something that takes place a thousand years in the future. And um, so I thought, well, what if it was like a life form? What if it was like an alien microbe, just a, a, yeah, a life form that travels around in space and it needs all that energy so that it can travel from star to star 
And um, yeah, and it grows on the surface of stars like a mold, you know, just like algae in the ocean. And I thought, okay, that'd be cool. Then if we got a hold of some of that, we could breed it on farms that we make and stuff like that, and then then do all that stuff. And I'm like, boy, we better be really careful to make sure none of that crap gets in our sun. <laughs> and then I was like, because that'd be that'd be that'd be an, a chaos and disaster. And I'm like, wait, chaos and disaster is where books come from. So then I realized, okay, so instead of humanity finding this and it happened, whatever, da da da. No, we discover it because it has infected our sun. <laughs> Uh. and all of the stars in our area and so our first extraterrestrial contact you know our first alien life form isn't a little green man that says take me to your leader it's mold (laughs) that's destroying our sun (laughs) well it's basically like an algae bloom on the sun it's it's consuming enough of the output of the sun that it and it's got it it's reproducing by doubling 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 you know so uh they They've got a fairly limited amount of time before the solar output can no longer support life on Earth. Right. Okay. Yeah. Normally, my next question is, uh, what's the uh, the the main character plot and conflict in the book? And it <laughs> seems like you've already discussed some of that. Well, that's the plot and the conflict. Uh, our main character is uh, well, his name is Ryland Grace, although he doesn't know that at the beginning of the book. He wakes up uh, in a hospital bed um, with a bunch of tubes in him. He and he has no complete amnesia. He has no idea who he is, why he's there, where he is. And over time, his memory slowly starts to come back to him. He realizes that he's been sent on this desperate mission to try to save humanity. And he's aboard a spacecraft. And um, he's actually in the Tau SETI system. Mm-hmm. Because they realize, they look and they see all the stars in our neighborhood are also dimming. They all have the same problem, except Tau SETI. And Tau Ceti hasn't changed luminance at all. And they're like, well, what's so special about Tau Ceti? Well, the bad news is this, this microbe is eating our sun. The good news is we can harvest this microbe and, and mass produce it and like feed it energy and whatever to make a, just a really awesome spacecraft fuel. So we can now make an interstellar ship. Yeah. And so they do. And uh, then our hero is the guy who's aboard the ship. Well, there were three people sent, but he's the only one who survived the trip. And uh, problem is it uh, kind of mushed his brain up a little bit. And he has, he has to kind of remember things via flashback. Yeah. And I don't want you to give any spoilers away, obviously. Yeah. Um, so, and hopefully this question doesn't pull at spoilers, but um, how much research did you do for this book? What, what sort of? Tons. Uh, I love, well, research is my favorite part of writing. I mean, I, I, that pesky putting words on a page and stupid characters and crap are annoying. It's, it's the research that I love. So I did tons of research. I went way down the rabbit hole on all sorts of things, all uh, further and further down than was ever remotely necessary. Um, (laughs) uh, Yeah, I, I just, I really enjoy doing that. Like, uh, I, I, I want to violate physics as little as possible. So the microbe that's working on, that's, you know, breeding on the sun is called, or we, uh, the human, humans end up giving it the name astrophage, which is Greek for, you know, star eater. And um, astrophage, I got deep into the weeds to finding exactly how astrophage works, like all the way down to the, you know, cellular molecular biology of everything inside of astrophage and how it works, how it stores the energy, how it, you know, how it exerts the energy and all that stuff. And 
that was that was a lot of fun for for me you know but you know maybe five percent of that ended up actually in the book hey but uh, people can tell you know people i uh, hope so hope so yeah yeah so are are there other sciences you went into um oh, like sure. propulsion you know that well i mean of course a lot of space stuff a lot of relativity um uh yeah, and a lot of biology I needed to learn about because I was making up an alien microbe, and um, also a lot of climatology because of the effects of, you know, you can find any number of papers out there. Lots of people are studying the effects of global climate change and, and you know, from CO2 emissions and all this other stuff, but not a lot of papers out there on what happens if the sun gets dimmer, <laughs> right? So <laughs> I had to kind of do a lot of speculation and try to figure out what was going on, what might happen. And yeah. <laughs> well, do you, do you ever plumb into the works of, um, are there earlier science fiction authors who might've touched on that? Uh, I've, I feel like there's a correct answer to this question, but I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know what it is. Um, sorry <laughs> i don't know i'm just curious yeah oh yeah well i mean sure sh surely there are many 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 science fiction properties where the earth is in danger and only a small group of people can save the day usually it's from a like a a, a meteor impact or some somehow a predicted solar flare or something like that mm -hmm. but um but this this idea of a microbe eating you know eating the sun I think I think that's fairly unique to me although I don't know <laughs> surely somebody yeah somebody else may have come up with it no I I just mean as far as the idea of the Earth um, cooling or something like that I was just curious you know oh well of course there have been all sorts of environmental based uh, sci-fi out there um, but the the uh, prox the the proximal cause is always. Um, either an immediate external threat, like an asteroid impact or a solar flare or something like that, or a man-made um, phenomenon like climate change and uh, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, or or I think there's you know things like um, you know Earth gets pulled out of its orbit by a passing rogue planet, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. I think there was a Twilight Zone episode that had that. that that's what actually what popped into my mind. Um, yeah. So. Well, yeah, that in, in that Twilight Zone episode, I feel like I should say spoilers, but it was like 70 years ago, so I feel people should be up to speed by now. Um, in that Twilight Zone episode, it's about like this woman dealing with uh, Earth, Earth, uh, like a passing planet or something like that pulled earth into a, a spiraling orbit that that's bringing it closer to the sun <laughs> and um and everything's getting hotter and hotter and hotter and this woman is like you know trying to deal with life and and it gets hotter and hotter and hotter until at one point you see her in bed and she's just got a fever and her fever is broken and it was all a hallucination and and she's like oh it's so nice it's a uh, you know feeling better but and in reality earth has been knocked away from the sun and it's getting colder and colder and colder and and so <laughs> yeah i'm speaking with andy weir author of project hail mary you can find more information about his work at andyweirauthor.com if you like this episode of full contact nerd interview so far please tap the like button and hit the subscribe button. If you want interviews with writers and creative people or daily book suggestions in sci-fi, fantasy, horror, film history, gaming, and more, 
check out fullcontactnerd.com and my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews. If you want to hear interviews with military historians or get daily history book suggestions, check out warscholar.org and my podcast, Military History Inside Out. If you want to hear interviews with space scientists, space historians, and technology experts, or get daily space and science book suggestions, check out technologyandspace.com and my podcast, Technology and Space. All of my social media links are listed at the end of this episode. Now back to the podcast. So with that that example in mind, um, how much do you study much um, sort of the psychology of isolation in space and that sort of thing? Um, I mean, I didn't study it per se. I, I invented some of it. <laughs> um, uh, but he's, you know, he's on a mission to, well, well first off, I, I, at one point I decided, I, this is just, I decided that if you, that the interior of the ship isn't like super big, it's smaller than the inside of the International Space Station, for instance. And it, it was going to have, it's designed to have a, a crew of three. And it was going to take, the, the crew would experience about four years of time on their trip to Tau Ceti. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I decided that they would, kill each other if that were the case because not only are they in close proximity unable to get away but they're also on a suicide mission and so it the psychology of that is that's why they were placed into comas medically induced comas for the trip mm-hmm. which also makes it easier for them to be fed a, a slurry of like food automatically rather than having to have a bunch of diverse meals and stuff and um yeah Unfortunately, that coma process turned out not to be as reliable as as they'd hoped, and Ryland was the only survivor of that crew of three. Um, but so he doesn't have to deal with a very long time being conscious and alone, right? Once he's you know once he wakes up, first off, he has no idea what's going on, so he's got all these mysteries to solve. Then he re- then he realizes, okay, I have to save all of humanity. So I better get on that. He doesn't really have a lot of time to feel lonely. <laughs> okay. So were there instances where the science that you researched sort of didn't work with where you wanted the plot to go? Um, not really. As a rule, when I, um, when I research, as a rule, the science tends to drive the plot when I'm writing. So I'm like, okay, well, how does this work? And okay, well, this is how it works. And, and delving deeper and deeper into the science is what gives me a cool ideas for how to, you know, for the problems that the, that the people would face and, and, and so on. So I, I, I calculated, you know, so much stuff, (laughs) like, you know, you know, well, you don't want to use, you don't want to use those engines, those astrophage engines too close to earth because if you're, I worked out the engines can provide a thrust to the ship of, of like one and a half G's or something to this ship. And the ship weighs a fair amount. And so, and it, and it gets all that thrust by just emitting light. (laughs) So the amount of light that this ship is emitting out the back, if it is, what is it? Less than 80,000 kilometers away from Earth, mm-hmm. it is actually hitting Earth with more light than the sun is. Right. I can see. <laughs> like, it's actually washing more energy over Earth than 
the solar energy that Earth is getting. So you have to get this ship really far away. Well, you have to you have to basically don't don't point the back of the ship at Earth until you're really far away. <laughs> yeah, that's cool stuff. Like, how, do you know, can you estimate how many times you had to you know go into the rabbit hole of calculations for stuff you were doing? Oh God, I couldn't even imagine. Every day, pretty much every day, and I have like. A, a whole folder full of spreadsheets. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Now, do you look for like when you when you have a calculation to make? Are you like, oh man, that's going to take me away from my writing? Or are you like, yay, yeah, yeah? It's it's the latter. It's like, oh boy, math. Yes, math has a definitive, correct answer. <laughs> writing is like, I hope people like this. Yeah, that's a good point. Um. Could, it sounds like you could almost put together a little book, you know, like the um, the uh, companion, companion, the companion yeah. calculation book. I could, but yeah, I but. <laughs> yeah, I'd rather work on something new. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. And I, I, I don't know how many people would be that interested in. Uh, <laughs> oh, I think you could find that. Not- there's that audience, that little crowd that's like, gimme. Give yeah, gimme, gimme. Yeah. Well, there's enough in there to satisfy them, I think. True, true. So, um. In general, and you've probably been asked this question a bunch of times, um, but I'll ask it, which is, what what are some of the movies, shows, books, uh, music that motivates you and inspires your work? Well, I mean, my particular style of sci-fi writing, uh, okay, so I'm like super hard sci-fi, right? As scientifically accurate as possible. That's kind of my thing, and just because that's what I know, so that's what I like to do. But the feel of my stories is definitely uh, based on the science fiction I read as a kid. And that was actually, I'm kind of a generation off. I read my father's science fiction collection. So I was a, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm 48 right now. And um, so, you know, when I was, I was uh, in my tweens and teens in the 1980s. Right. And that's when I was really into reading sci-fi books, but I read my dad's science fiction collection. So I was reading books from the fifties and Mm sixties. So my Holy Trinity are um, Asimov, Heinlein and Clark. Yeah. And I also love Clifford Simak, who a lot of people don't really remember, but he's also got a lot of great stuff out there. Um, And yeah. uh, uh, So back then the, 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 they were called juveniles um, because that's, that's, they, they were targeted. The target was for kids to read really not, not educational, but just, they didn't think that full-grown adults would enjoy these stories as much as kids. They're adventure stories. They're like Tom Swift, but science fiction, right? Um, but what I especially love is these juvenile, you know, because I was reading not just editions of those books, but those original books, like dad's copies. So they had yellowed pages that would crack a little bit. They had kind of that musty smell to them. And my, my favorite thing is that, like, back then they would put ads they put an advertisement page in the middle of the book. And so these books that are targeted at teenage boys, like 15 year old boys, there's an ad for cigarettes. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. The fifties baby. But um, yeah, but back then science fiction was really optimistic. It was really like you read those books, you read those old sci-fi books and, and they don't stand up in a lot of ways. Okay. They don't, you, you've got to, you've got to judge them by a product of their time. You, you're not going to like the gender uh, situation in those books. You're not going to like how women are portrayed. Uh, you, you, you really are not going to like that if you're a modern reader. <laughs> um, 
you're not going to like that. But if you if you just consider them as a as a as an object of their time, just kind of like you might for a Shakespeare play, you just uh, you they can be really enjoyable. And also, they're very positive futures. Um, sometimes the predictions were like really way off, but um, just you're like, that future is really cool. I'd like to live in that future. And yeah, the protagonist is being chased by space pirates and stuff. I wouldn't want to be him, but I would love to live in that future because it's awesome. You can just catch it. You can just buy a ticket and get a trip to Mars and, you know, just that'd be awesome. Nowadays, I feel like sci-fi has been kind of hijacked by um, bleak, dystopian, fascist miseryscapes where teenagers doing weird stuff is how the government functions. And I, I don't know, I, I get, it's like the, the, the growth of YA novels and science fiction has been kind of like really taken over by that. Um, unless you also include, um, you know, a, a lot of people include all the comic book genre movies to be science fiction, which I, I suppose they are, but they're their own kind of special little niche. And even they can be pretty bleak. Uh, but I'm, I miss the good old days of science fiction where you're like, kind of like classic Star Trek. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, they've got their problems, but man, that's a cool future. You know, that's, that's a, that's a future I'd love to live in. It would be awesome to be a citizen of the Federation, Yeah, you know, especially if you're not, you know, way out on the edge of Federation space. So there's all sorts of problems, but if you're just some person living on earth yeah, in the classic Trek era, life is good. <laughs> it's kind of funny though, because technology is making, uh, obviously there are problems, but it's making a lot of things better. And yet, like you yeah. said, people want to look at the dark side. Yeah. Well, it's because there's a few things. First off, um, it's, it's an easy plot for the reader to wrap their mind around. You can, if you make, if you make um, disenfranchised, disempowered people living in a fascist state, you don't need to spend a lot of time explaining the morality to the reader. The reader immediately understands, okay, these pseudo-Nazis are the bad guys and this, these impoverished, you know, you know, these impoverished, mistreated uh, underclass people are, are the good guys. You, you don't have, there's not a lot of moral ambiguity. You don't have to, you don't have to service the plot line of why the bad guys are bad and the good guys are good. And you don't have to have a lot of nuance. And, and I I don't think nuance is really necessary. I like a good old, you know, good versus evil, no shades of gray kind of stuff. I like star Wars. The empire is bad. They're bad. They blow up planets. They're bad people. Okay. There's no nuance and that's fine. (laughs) You know, but, um, but yeah, so I, I think that the, the whole fascism thing, it, it, it's a really easy plot mm-hmm. to do. And so it, it, it really appeals. And it's also taps into what, for lack of a better term, and I'm, well, it's already a term, whatever, this kind of technophobia that a lot of people have, yeah. where the idea is if it's new, if it's been invented recently, it's scary and probably disastrous. Like that's that that's the feeling. Yeah. It's like so basically every episode of Black Mirror, right? Yeah. It's always about how technology's bad and like, oh, now that this thing's been invented, humanity is is doomed to go down this path of misery and stuff like that. And I just feel like reality has not borne that out. I'm I'm a bit of a Pollyanna, I admit. I'm a very optimistic person. <laughs> but in real life, um technology is almost always in in like 99 point a whole bunch of nines percent of the time Mm -hmm. 
technology, whatever it is, does more good than harm. And in fact, I would, I, I would challenge you to come up with any technology that has been more harmful to humanity than good overall. Yeah. Like, so the first time, you know, people say like nuclear bombs and I'm like, well, nuclear power. Right. Right. How many people have not died in coal mines because of nuclear power, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and so on. And, you know, so it's hard to actually come up with a technology that has done more harm than good. And the reason for that, I believe, is because as a species, we're pretty freaking awesome. Like we are, it is built into our, to our lizard brain or our monkey brain, I guess, to be cooperative and work with each other and help each other. Not everybody does it, but it's the default behavior of humanity to try to make life better for humanity. And, and so if you invent a technology that can be used for evil, well, it's going to be used for evil, but a whole lot more people are going to be looking for ways to use it for good. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting because you made me think that, uh, you know, you think about plots where the, the point is to defeat the enemy or you can have plots where the point is to overcome a problem and create sort of a, a I don't know, but like um, thinking of the Martian, you know, it's. Yeah, that's that's person versus nature. Right. It, you know, the, the four canonical plots are person versus person, person versus society, person versus themselves and person versus nature. Hmm. And I'm I'm a person versus nature kind of guy. I, I I love that because well I generally do lots and lots of people versus nature. It's like problem that is not being caused by a malevolence, but just problem. And then okay, a bunch of people solution? No, that didn't work. Okay, different solution? No, no. Okay, how about this? You know, I like that. I like cooperation. I like I like I like how humans are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's very interesting. I, I, There's the occasional genocide. Don't get me wrong. We're not perfect. Right. So um, if this book had a soundtrack, um, what would its sort of aesthetic be? What kind of beat would it have? I think there'd be a lot of Beatles music. Oh, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> um, there, uh, there are a lot of Beatles Easter eggs in the book. Hmm. Um, that I snuck in there. I'm a big Beatles fan. The dedication of the book is to John, Paul, George, and Ringo. Um, there is um, actually like direct references uh, to it because he, ha uh, this is not a huge spoiler, on his ship, the Hail Mary is the name of the ship. Mm -hmm. He has four tiny little ships that weigh like a hundred kilograms total. And they're mostly fuel, this, this astrophage fuel. And their job is just to take data back to earth. Mm -hmm. That's it. Yeah, he's not going home. These are right. Because there's just no way to have enough. They couldn't possibly get enough fuel for a round trip. So he'll go to Tau Ceti. He'll find the answer, die and send back the information. That's kind of the mission. Right. And, um, so there are four of these things, and they basically are these oblong spheroids with a little triangle at the front. That's the sensor array and computer stuff. And then this, um, the engine in the back, and it looks like a beetle, like the bug, uh -huh. like it looks like a beetle. So they're called the beetles, and there are four of them. So the, the ship names are John, Paul, George, and Ringo. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Because the people who created them had a sense of humor. Yeah. So I see on Amazon that one of the categories the book falls under is humorous science fiction. Is that a fair? 
category? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I, I love uh, humor. Um, one thing I found is that, well, well, for my particular writing style, which is so science heavy mm-hmm. and with such a focus on scientific accuracy, I end up having to exposition a lot of stuff to the reader. I'm like, okay, well, I need to explain to the reader what neutrinos are, how they work, and why. <laughs> and that's not the sort of thing most people want to sit through a lecture on, right? But I've found that a reader will forgive you any amount of exposition if you make them laugh. Uh, so if there's humor, they will, they'll, sure, tell me all about the, you know, general relativity, whatever. As long as there's a, you make me chuckle every three paragraphs, I'll keep reading. Okay. That's a nice, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, it's a secret that only me and every writer throughout all time have uh, are, are privy to. Oh, okay, and you shared it with the rest of us. <laughs> yes, now 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 it's out there. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, uh, let let me turn to uh, how you do your your writing. Um, is um, well, there's I have this thing here. It's it's got a bunch of letters on these switches, and I, I hit them, and then it uh, it. Yeah. No. You, you don't you don't use like virtual. Type. virtual <laughs> not yet not 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 yet no oh, okay <laughs> well apart from the keyboard is there anything uh, out of the ordinary keyboard. That... that's a great name for this thing. <laughs> do um, you think that works yeah i think that works i think button board was another idea i had button board there we go <laughs> so be it known chris alvarez invented the term keyboard. board <laughs> <laughs> um so- so anything out of the ordinary? Uh, no, I would say in the grand scheme of things, I'm very boring in terms of routine. Uh-huh. Um, I set myself a word limit, uh, not a limit, but count, uh, requirement. Mm-hmm. Of I, I, When I'm working on a first draft, I want to do a thousand words a day. Mm-hmm. And actually the way I make it, uh, and I take weekends off. And so actually the way I phrase it is, my rule is I need 5,000 words a week. And each day has to have at least that day times a thousand words. So at the end of Monday, I need to have at least a thousand words done. At the end of Tuesday, I need to have at least 2000 words done. Wednesday, 3000 words. This way, if I, if it's like Tuesday and I'm on a roll and I'm doing well, I'm not discouraged from continuing. Right. Uh-huh. Right. I don't want to, I'd be like, whoa, whoa. I don't want to be, you know, I want to, you know, wait till tomorrow. So I get them in tomorrow's quota. I don't want to game the system like that. So Instead, if I'm on a roll and I'm doing well, then I just know that I'm working on the next day's quota. Okay. You know, and I'm getting I'm getting ahead of the game. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's you know I and I apply a bunch of rules to myself. I say like, okay, until I've made my words mm-hmm. for the day, I cannot. Uh, these are self-imposed. Can't do any woodworking, which is my favorite. That's my hobby. Um, can't do it. Can't do any form of video entertainment. Not TV. Not YouTube. Not streaming nothing like that can't play any uh board games um i play a lot of board games with my friends and especially now in the covid era we have all all the virtual gaming you know we can we can game remotely so it's very easy to just hey guys let's game yeah and can't do that until i've made my words okay and so on um i don't always succeed <laughs> in my own rules no not at all of course not. <laughs> you break your rules huh i i i but i try you know i try I'm speaking with Andy Weir, author of Project Hail Mary. You can find more information about his work at andyweirauthor.com. If you like this episode of Full Contact Nerd Interviews so far, please tap the like button and hit the subscribe button. If you want interviews with writers and creative people or daily book suggestions in sci-fi, fantasy, horror, film history, gaming, and more, 
check out fullcontactnerd.com and my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews. If you want to hear interviews with military historians or get daily history book suggestions, check out warscholar.org and my podcast, Military History Inside Out. If you want to hear interviews with space scientists, space historians, and technology experts, or get daily space and science book suggestions, check out technologyandspace.com and my podcast, Technology and Space. All of my social media links are listed at the end of this episode. Now back to the podcast. But what are your favorite board games? I- oh, I play so many board games. Um, one of my favorites is a, a cooperative game. See, hey, I like cooperative games. I'm a cooperative guy. Uh, one, of, one of my favorites is a co-op game called Hanabi, um, which is uh, a really fun one. Um, and uh, some of the less cooperative games I like. I like Ticket to Ride. Mm-hmm. I like Power Grid. Um, what are some of the other ones we play all the time? Karuba, Azul. I, I, yeah. I'm, I'm a board game geek, so a lot of these are probably just if you're not also a board game geek, a lot of these are probably just meaningless words. <laughs> but if, if otherwise, um, yeah. yeah. Do you, do you, um, do you keep up with the new games that are coming out? I, I do oh, yeah. some board gaming. That's why. I... Oh, excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. I try to, um, before the pandemic, uh, there was this, uh, one buddy of mine is like way into board gaming. Like he's got, you know, he's hardcore. And, uh, every few years he'll go to S and, for the at Essen has like is the world's biggest board gaming convention happens every year and well not not when there's a pandemic and um and that's where a lot of major board gaming companies will debut their new games Mm -hmm. and uh, most the best board games come out of Europe yeah uh generally it's generally accepted that that's the case uh Germany especially so it's not surprising that it's that it's in Essen Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so he would go to Essen and he'd come back with like a bunch of games that we'd never heard of or seen before. And, you know, we'll play them and stuff like that. I go to, I go to board game conventions, you know, uh, again, not during COVID, but you know, there's a a local gaming convention here in the Bay area called Kublicon that I go to every year with my friends. Uh We have a grand old time. It's great. Yeah. Gen Con, you've been to Gen Con. I, I have never been to Gen Con. I mean, obviously it's a huge deal, um, but I I just don't like to travel that much if I can avoid it. And I don't want to go to Indianapolis. Um, Not that there's anything wrong with the great city of Indianapolis and the great people of Indiana. It's just far away. (laughs) I live in California. So that's why I like to go to the the local conventions. There's a lot of them in the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. Plenty to keep me busy. Yeah. And when I lived in Southern California, I used to go to those. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm not trying to convince you. I'm just telling listeners Gen Con is really awesome. I'll just Gen Con is is a, most of my board game geek friends go to Gen Con, mm-hmm. and they all agree it is awesome. Yeah. Wait a minute. <laughs> you, it's for someone who writes about outer space and traveling out to outer space, but you you don't like to travel. I have a fear of flying, a serious fear of flying, like a, a massive phobia about it. Hmm. So the way I fly, uh, well, so. For most of my life, I didn't have to. I just didn't fly. I would drive or just not go to places, you know. And But when I became a writer, that's when I had to start to go all over the place to do events and stuff like that. And so um, uh, uh, I 
the the, the, the long story short, Valium. Mm-hmm. <laughs> lots and lots of Valium. So I load up on Valium before the flight. I am sort of a non-entity during the flight. Uh-huh. And then like I, it, and it works. It works. That's all that matters. My doc, I've been doing it for years and years. And my doctor, you know, I only take it to fly. So my doctor's like, all right, you have a five-year history of not abusing this stuff. So yeah. we're good. And so your character in this book, it sounds like he comes out of a sort of Valium-induced... Uh... <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, but <laughs> yeah. he was in a coma for four years, so a little, a little worse off. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, so woodworking, do you, do you make any game pieces? Uh, I have for sure. I also, I I like to invent my own games. They generally suck, but that's fun to do. And, um, I make, I, I make custom game pieces sometimes just for the hell of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have a laser cutter back there. Oh, wow. Um, uh, it's a little 30 watt model. It's not super powerful. Mm -hmm. It can get through like quarter inch wood and that's about as thick as it can do. Mm -hmm. Um, and I have a lot of fun with that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and there was this one game uh, uh, called Seafall mm-hmm. that is what's called a legacy game, which means you the rules change every time you play it. And once oh, you wow. play it, once you reach the end of the game, you're, you're done. Uh-huh. Right. So it's like it's a legacy game. Anyway, um, the scoring for Seafall was complicated. It's like, okay, you get one point for this, but you get two points for that. But every time you do this, you gain a point and this, and, and we would have a tough time tracking the score. So I made like a score tracker, just these things where, you know, every point was a quarter inch. Mm -hmm. And so I'd have these little quarter inch thick things for one point and you just drop it into your little column and it'll slide into place or, you know, half inch for two points, three quarter inch for three points and so on. And then here's the line that causes victory. And so you just, as you gain points, you just drop the things in and it's this little accumulator. And, you know, I certainly didn't need to do that, but it was fun. Yeah. Yeah. That's commitment to the game. That's pretty cool. It's commitment to the project i i enjoy the project more than anything else oh i see uh do you prefer the games that are quick to learn and quick to play or do you like the long drawn out you know epic games i i i i like the quicker ones better however uh i have a great hatred of learning new games once i've learned a game i'll often love it and want to play it all the time but it's just that 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 initial hump of of like i hate learning rules mm-hmm. i i hate it yeah. but like once i know the rules then i'm like okay this is fun yeah. so those really complex games uh where there's a whole lot of rules mm-hmm. sometimes it's really difficult to get me to try them out at all okay but then like so one of my favorite games is power grid mm-hmm. and that's a very complicated game it's got a whole lot of rules a whole lot of complexity but once i learned once my friends like held me down and made me learn it i I really enjoy it now now i know the rules i'm fine (laughs) yeah yeah how about just using i know youtube you can see rules you know just kind of watch them yeah yeah play through videos or let's play is a good one yeah um and i i do that too when i want to learn but it's always the edge cases that bug me i mean 25 years as a software engineer i'm always like what about this edge case they didn't cover that (laughs) Um, all right, let me turn back to, uh, how your writing has your writing changed over time since your first book to now. Well, yeah, especially considering my first book was, uh, two, bo- 
three books before The Martian. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah, my first two books that I made never got published um, because, well, the first one was awful. The second one was merely bad. <laughs> and then The Martian worked out pretty well. Yeah. Um, I'm always trying to grow as a writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a combination of imposter syndrome and maybe just a, 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 an accurate self-analysis. But I don't, I, I have never really thought of myself as a particularly good writer. Hmm. Uh, I feel like I'm good at coming up with interesting situations to put my characters in, uh-huh. but I'm not a very good writer. I'm not a very good wordsmither, uh-huh. uh, and I'm not I'm not I, I'm not very good at character depth or complexity and stuff like that. So I'm working on that. So in The Martian, it was all situational. It was all plot, no character. Like Mark Watney had a likable personality, okay, but he didn't have any depth. I mean, you don't know anything about Mark Watney other than he didn't want to die. And you can say that about most people, right? Yeah. Um, and at the end of the book, he's exactly the same personality as he was at the beginning of the book. He didn't go undergo any growth or change or anything. So there was neither character depth nor character development in that book. It was a purely plot-based adventure. It's a popcorn book. Huh. Okay. And so I thought, all right, well, I want to, I, I, I don't want to rest on my laurels. I want to get better at writing. Yeah. And so my next book, Artemis, uh, which wasn't nearly as well received, um, I put a lot of character depth into my uh, protagonist, mm-hmm. Jazz, B- Jazz Bashara. She was flawed. She would make mistakes. She'd make bad decisions in her past. Um, she had growth. She became a better person by the end of the book. But I went too far. I made her too flawed. And I think I alienated a lot of readers. They just mm-hmm. found her like difficult to root for because she would just she made so many bad decisions that ended up being self-destructive. She was kind of the agent of her own problems. Hmm. And a lot of people had a hard time rooting for that. So I learned a lesson there. In Project Hail Mary, um, Grace, you know, Ryland Grace, the main character, has a, 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 a subtlety, a more subtle depth and complexity to him. Hmm. And the flaws that he has don't make you dislike him. Uh Um, or at least that's my goal the flaws that he has are flaws that a lot of us have and so it hopefully that makes you identify with him rather than you know pushing you away and he's sort of an everyman he's not he's not really qualified for this mission he wasn't the best choice for it but he was one who ended up having to go because of reasons that are explained in the book Mm -hmm. and um yeah so that that feeling of being inadequate to a task and you know in over your head i think we all we all know what that's like and and it's really it's really easy to identify with a character who's in that position yeah. so made him uh made him like that and also um the the story have you read it all the way through or the uh, hail mary Project hail mary no i haven't received it yet actually oh i'm i'm sorry i i thought you'd received it no, no. um uh, so I've been here spoiling stuff for you. Okay. Well, no, no, no. <laughs> um, but there is, um, there is a large element of friendship mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, a, a lot of books is flashbacks, but um, uh, there, the, one of the central plots of this book is friendship mm-hmm. and, and loyalty to your friend. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that is a, a thing that feels good to read about, you know, it makes you feel good to think about friends caring about each other. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, as you were speaking, I was thinking back to the Martian. It's almost like I I feel like I need to reread it because I didn't I didn't sense 
what you were describing, oh, there was no growth of character and stuff. And I sent, maybe I instilled my own, you know, feelings of growth in the character because I, I didn't sense that. Um, well, I, I'm glad you didn't sense it. <laughs> uh, yeah, the thing about The Martian is it's a, it's an entirely 100% plot-driven story. Yeah. Huh. Um, there's there's not, I mean, I would say that, um, like, the the characters at NASA, some of the characters at NASA undergo more change and growth. These completely tertiary characters, hmm. you know, undergo more change than, like, Mark. Huh. I still, I still enjoyed it a lot. So, okay. well, I'm glad. Yeah, I'm glad. Yeah. So you, you did this software, uh, the software work. Um, is there any other work you've done that sort of influenced how and what you write, or is it that been? No, I was a software engineer for my whole career, mm-hmm. um, right out of college, um, uh, until the Martian took off, and then, then I quit to be a full time writer and haven't worked an honest day since then. Um, uh, but I've always had a deep interest in a bunch of the sciences. So I do my own research on, you know, relativity is interesting to me. Quantum physics is interesting to me, although I don't remotely understand it. (laughs) It pisses me off because a lot of these things, it's been easy for me to wrap my brain around, but quantum physics, I'm just, what? (laughs) (laughs) I would like to someday, my, a challenge I've made for myself is I would like to find a way to describe the basics of quantum mechanics Mm-hmm. such that it's understandable to the layman. Yeah, and funny. Uh, well, not necessarily funny. It doesn't even have to be for a story. <laughs> Just an, I would settle for an article. Yeah. And the one thing I've come up with so far is you have to stop thinking about physics as the rules of the universe that you live in, and you have to start thinking about things as in terms of I'm explaining the rules to a board game. Hmm. Like, okay. like, because you don't ask a lot of questions about the rules of a board game. If I say like in Monopoly, okay, you roll the dice and you move that many squares. Nobody ever asks, well, can I be exactly halfway between two squares? I'm like what? No, you have to be on this square or that square. You can't be in any other state, yeah. right? But that's what quantum mechanics is. You can be this or that. You can't be anything in between, even though it feels like you should. <laughs> yeah. And Why? Why and in what circumstances? Can't help you with why. Um, <laughs> physics isn't about why so much, or if you look into the why, all you find out are, are more whys. Yeah. You know, it says like, well, the physics is all about, well, these are the rules of the universe we're in. Yeah. This is it. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is how things work. <laughs> yeah. Huh. Okay. Um, so, just back to your writing process again. Do you, did you do you overwrite and cut back, or do you underwrite and and have to pump it up for the editor? Or I usually, I guess, correctly write. Okay, but I mean, I I need a lot of editing. Mm-hmm. You no, know, so uh, I I get I generally don't end up cutting a lot or having to add a lot, but I do end up having to change a lot. Mm-hmm. So I guess while the sheer quantity of my first draft is about the same as my final, mm-hmm. uh, the, the differences between my first draft and my final are significant. You know? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and was that the same way back? Like your first, your first book? That- well, for, well, let's start with the Martian rather than my earlier books. Cause they, they never underwent um, editing processes with any professionals or anything, 
but with the Martian, um, not many changes. Uh, they really liked that pretty much the way it was. Okay. Um, with Artemis, huge edits, like big core plot changes and stuff, because I, I had a lot of troubles with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Project Hail Mary, uh, back to uh, fairly, fairly small, in the grand scheme of things, fairly small changes. Mm-hmm. When you wrote The Martian, were you aiming for an audience or did you just want to write a book that you felt good about that you thought some people might like? <laughs> uh, really the latter. So at the time I was, um, I had done a web comic for many years that was a science dork based web comic. And then I got sick of doing the art because I'm terrible at art. And so I decided to go just into narrative fiction, just short stories and serials. And so I had a regular uh, li- um, a mailing list an email list of about 3000 regular readers Mm. and they were all like total nerds, like hardcore dorks like myself. And so I was writing the Martian. It it was a, it was a serial. I was really writing it for them. I'm like, I'm not writing for a mainstream audience. I'm writing for a bunch of science dorks. Let's go full science dork and write a story for them, for me. Yes. And I, to this day, don't understand why, uh, how it got so popular. Like, it's 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 a big book of algebra word questions and and for some reason people love it yeah yeah hey hey good for you good good for me wish i knew what i did right (laughs) so a bit of a whimsical question um when you were young was there a power technology or fictional setting that you yearn to have or be part of time travel always been my favorite and i definitely I want to write a time travel book. I'm like, now I'm a sci-fi author. I can do this. And I I haven't come up with, I mean, I have a million time travel ideas that all suck. I need one that's good. And, and so I I haven't quite got there yet. Um, But I've got some cool ways to meld time travel with realistic physics. And so I got, I got ideas. I got ideas. That's the thing about time travel. It's fun, but the science of it is, no, you got to give up on the science of it. You're you're not you're 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 not writing hard science fiction at that point. Or, well, for me, I'm I'm a fan of all science fiction. I mean, you can see the TARDIS back there. I don't know if you're a Doctor Who fan, but yeah. um, Doctor Who is just about as far from hard sci-fi as you can get. It is the softest sci-fi. If my if my science fiction is steel, Doctor Who is whipped cream. <laughs> but whipped cream tastes great. You know, oh, yeah. I love it. True. And I I I like uh, Doctor Who is my favorite sci-fi property. I like it more than Star Trek, more than Star Wars, more than anything. So that should prove to you that you know accurate science is not important to me at all in terms of enjoying fiction. I mean, it's, it's what I write because it's where I think my strengths lie, Hmm. but all I really care about is in sci-fi is whatever science you come up with, be consistent. Mm -hmm. Okay. However, you're going to break the rules, be consistent. So if you set up a bunch of rules for time travel, you can change history, blah, blah, blah. It's fine. Mm -hmm. Be consistent. So when Biff Tannen (laughs) <laughs> in 2015, the old Biff Tannen goes back in time to 1955 and gives young Biff Tannen the sports almanac. He comes back forward in time to 2015 again. Yeah. But he should have gone to the alternate timeline 2015 caused by his changes. Yeah. But he didn't. Yeah. So I'm just really mad at Zemeckis and Gale. I'm just so furious. No, but that's what I'm saying. It's like that it sticks in my craw when I see inconsistencies like that. Right. Right. Fun fact, 
there were four copies of the DeLorean in Hill Valley for a few days. Oh, yeah. 1955. Yeah. So Marty went back in time to 1955 and he was there for about a week and then he went forward to 1985. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So for about a week, there was that, that DeLorean was there. Right. right. But then Biff Tannen gets a hold of it in 2015 and goes back in time to that same week when Marty is also there yeah. with it to, to give the almanac to young Biff. Right. So that's who. Yeah, right. Yeah. And then while Biff Tannen, and then he comes back to 2015 illegally, the wrong <laughs> timeline. Yeah. And then Doc and Marty take that DeLorean. They realize they take that DeLorean back to 1985 a, which is the messed up future where Biff is in charge of everything. So then they go back to 1955 yeah. um, to that same week to try to get the almanac. And they're there at the same time that old Biff is there. So that's three copies of the DeLorean that's there. And then Doc, Doc's car gets struck by lightning, ends up in 1885. Uh-huh. And he gets stranded there and he puts the DeLorean in a cave for Doc and Marty to find um, later. Mm-hmm. And so after the after all of the events of, of the Back to the Future segments in 1955, yeah. they go dig up that DeLorean and repair it and go back to the future. So that was in the cave as well. So there were four copies of the DeLorean, wow. all in Hill Valley, all at the same time. Wow. So there. And does that make you mad? Or is that just... No, that's perfect. That is awesome is what that is. Okay. <laughs> Man, I'm going to have to go back and watch the movies. And Damn right you are. I've seen them so many times. It is. I mean, I love Doctor Who, but Back to the Future is the best time travel thing ever. Yeah. I almost <laughs> wore my Doctor Who shirt for this. but I Oh, should have. Yeah, yeah. You should have told me. I would have worn mine. <laughs> we could have. Yeah, we could have matched. Yeah, I got a big picture of the 13th Doctor. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I got it. At, I got it at the last Comic-Con um, before COVID. <laughs> yeah yeah before covid san diego comic-con yeah seems like a long time ago seems like a long time ago so um there's a time travel story um anyway um so considering that sometimes authors get pigeonholed you, you don't worry about getting pigeonholed as a hard sci-fi author and being told and eh, no time travel for you uh not that worried about it i mean i i i am extremely fortunate to be in a position where like if i said hey i'm gonna write a soft sci-fi my editors my you know the the publisher would still publish it mm. you know mm-hmm. and because if they said no any other publisher would love to you know to to publish a book with my with my name at the bottom yeah so i i'm very fortunate in that i don't i don't have to to worry about that Mm -hmm. but even if i were pigeonholed i don't think i'd have a problem with it i really like writing hard Mm sci-fi i mean i don't envision myself writing a well i definitely don't envision myself leaving science fiction Mm -hmm. like i don't imagine writing a fantasy or anything like that Mm -hmm. if i was if i i'm sorry if i were to write something that wasn't science fiction it would be a contemporary crime novel i like you know a good cops and robbers story Mm -hmm. um a heist kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Artemis is, Artemis is basically a sci-fi heist. Yeah. Yeah. What, what real world heist movies or shows do you like? Is there anything that sticks out? The, uh, well, um, good question. Okay. So, uh, I really liked the original oceans 11, mm-hmm. the, 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 the rat pack one okay. from the sixties. That was a good one. 
It's a good heist movie. Mm-hmm. Um, the new the new Oceans X films are are decent too, mm-hmm. uh, but they go a little over the top. What are some other good heist things? Uh, well, the, the, if you consider it a heist, The Sting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. although that's really a con, not a heist. Right. right. Um, it's a little different. There was that one um, movie. Dang it. Now I'm. Uh, and I do notice a thread of friendship. Those movies that you named, it's yeah. like, you know, friends working together with issues. But, you know, yeah. you mentioned yeah. earlier the companion. A team. Yeah. yeah. We've got to put together a squad. There's always the, you know, there's always the, you know, you, you son of a bitch, I'm in, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Quote Rick and Morty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, wow. Yeah. So considering a rule of not doing anything fun before you finish your, your quota of writing, considering uh-huh. all the stuff you like, that's, that's, you're really stressing yourself out there. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, but this is my job. I right. mean, yeah. yeah. And writing is, as anyone will tell you, like, you know, uh, 5% inspiration, 95% perspiration. I mean, in the end, you come up with the idea, but then you got to write it, and it is work. And sometimes I just want to bash my head into a wall because I'm just like every word is torture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Please don't do that. That's <laughs> well, uh, yeah. I've, so far, I have resisted the urge to bash my head into a wall. Yeah, good, good. Um, did you? So it sounds like this. The process for writing this book was pretty smooth. Do you have any difficulties? Uh, this one worked out pretty well because um, I had the basic plot and premise together. Mm-hmm. I, I had some alternate ideas for the core plot line. Mm-hmm. I had a very different idea for like kind of the second act and third act um, than than what I ultimately wrote. Mm-hmm. But I simplified it dramatically, and I'm glad I did. Oh, okay. Um, don't want to say too much without spoilers, no. but uh, but yeah, that one. Yeah, it came together pretty well. I pretty much knew. I'm like, okay, here, here are the main big beats of the plot. Not an outline, but just like this. Like, here's a list of five things, and these are going to happen in this order. Mm-hmm. And then these are the major turning points of the story. You know. Okay. Okay. Um, can you mention your current or future writing project? Um, I'm choosing not to, I am working on my next book, okay. but, um, after Jack, I learned to be a little gun shy about announcing, okay. um, because I can get quite a ways into a book before realizing that it's bad. So rather than tell everybody that I'm working on such and such, I just wait until I'm sure that that's, what's going to be my next book. And then, and then talk about it. So with Jack, was there a rising sense that this isn't working or did you hit a point yeah. where you're like, uh, yeah, I just felt like, ah, oh, this isn't working. Ah, oh, this isn't working. Or, and then I'm like, ah, oh, this is running really long and not going anywhere. Well, that's what editing's for. And then eventually I'm like, wow, I just don't see how this comes together in any reasonable way. Mm-hmm. And I'm, so. It sounded like a Pulp Fiction, you know, Pulp Sci-Fi kind of idea. You know, like a John Carter on Mars or. Which or what? Jack. Jack? Yeah. Um, yeah. No, it was really more of an a space epic, like you know, Game of Thrones level of plot complexity and character size and mm. you know, character count and stuff like that. And, and um, if anything, The Martian is the John Carter on Mars equivalent. It was a 
pulpy adventure story that was in fact a serial (laughs) yeah yeah do do you want to write something like that eventually like if it works you know i'm not sure i i don't think you know, it felt like it would be awesome mm-hmm. in my when I was thinking about it in my mind. Yeah, and I could already see people at conventions cosplaying my characters and stuff like that. But yeah. but then when I started writing it, I'm like, there's too many characters in this book to service them all. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows. You know, it's either going to be a million pages long or is going to have a bunch of characters that go by so fast you don't know who the hell they are, and. So it it just wasn't working. Okay. But there was one character in there that was really awesome. And I, and I thought she's awesome. It's too bad. She has to go on the, in the back burner with the rest of Jack. So I stole her and she's a, a, a character that is virtually identical to her is in project Hail Mary. Cool. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Um, so obviously everyone you're you're well known, but I'll ask where can people find you online? Your thoughts and updates and um, uh, well, they can find my my page is andyweirauthor dot com. Uh, I'm on Facebook as the you know very surprising Andy Weir, mm-hmm. and um, on Twitter as Andy Weir Author. You know, and uh, that's about it. Okay, that's uh, and I I don't uh, I, I'm not super active. I maybe once every week or two I'll post something. But that's about it. Okay. Fair enough. I don't really talk about my day to day life in, uh, on my social media or anything like that. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, all right. Well, that's all the questions I have. Do you have any parting thoughts or words? Nope. Is cereal a soup? Cereal a soup? Is cereal a soup? <sighs> I, it's I need chunks a- in a liquid medium. Yes. Right. And just because it's cold doesn't mean it's not a soup. Gazpacho is a soup, and it's served cold. True, true. Um, wow, I'm stumped. Yeah. <laughs> is there? Yeah, no, yeah. Welcome to my world. Or is cereal an entree? Now, because you start by putting the cereal in the bowl, and then you pour the milk on it, cereal might be an entree, and the milk <laughs> might be a sauce. Okay, so you need to think about this. Uh, Long and hard. I, I'll think about that. Um, All right. I, I do appreciate that that um, that uh, homework assignment you've given me. <laughs> there. Yeah. No. You you think about that. <laughs> I will. All right. Okay. Well, well. Thanks very much for speaking with me. Thanks for having me. In the next episode, I speak with sci-fi and fantasy author Martha Wells about her science fiction novella *Fugitive Telemetry* and the *Murderbot Diaries* series. Space dock the subscribe button to catch that episode. Thank you for listening to Full Contact Nerd Interviews. If you want more interviews with writers and creative people, or to get daily fiction suggestions including sci-fi, fantasy, horror, film history, gaming, and more, sign up for my newsletter at fullcontactnerd.com and follow me on Chris Alvarez Full Contact Nerd on YouTube and Chris Alvarez FCN on Facebook and Twitter, Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi on Instagram, and this podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews. If you want to hear interviews with military historians or get daily history book suggestions, check out warscholar.org and follow me at Warscholar on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, at Chris Alvarez Warscholar on Instagram, and my podcast, Military History Inside Out. If you want to hear interviews with space scientists, space historians, and technology experts, 
or get daily space and science book suggestions, check out technologyinspace.com and follow me at Spacewalks Money Talks on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, Spacewalks MT on Twitter, and my podcast, Technology in Space. Thanks for listening, and I hope to see you again soon. Keep imagining the past, the present, and the future.